Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Tara Ross. She's the author of Why We Need the Electoral College. Is the Electoral College anti-democratic? Some would say yes. After all, the presidential candidate with the most popular votes has nevertheless lost the election at least three times, including most recently in 2016. To some Americans, that's a scandal. They believe the Electoral College is an intolerable flaw in the Constitution, a relic of a bygone era that ought to have been purged long ago. But Tara Ross argues... That would be a mistake. It's a well-written and thoroughly researched book on an incredibly timely topic, and we had a great discussion about it. I give you Tara Ross. Tara, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. You wrote a book, Why We Need the Electoral College. My guess is, in most cocktail parties and most rooms you're in, you know more about the Electoral College than anybody, right? I mean, like, <laughs> who, who knows anything about the Electoral College generally, right? I probably know more than most people care to know <laughs> is the answer to your question. I usually lead in and say something like, I know, I, you know, I've written these books about the Electoral College that either makes me your favorite person or your least favorite person in the room. If Jeopardy, if you were on Jeopardy and the final Jeopardy question was Electoral College, would you bet at all? Yeah. 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 Because could anybody, is there anybody that would be a rival for you in that category in Jeopardy that you know? Like if, if, if the Je if the Electoral College category came up, do you, do you think there's anybody that you know that would do better than you on it? That would do better? Yeah. I, I guess I don't know how I'm going to rank people, but there, there are several law professors that I respect a lot that know an awful lot about the subject too. Well, I'm privileged to talk with you because I know, very, you know, I mean, I, I know uh, very less than you and probably maybe more than the average American, which wouldn't say much, right? I, <laughs> I, I, think, I think there's only one state in the country, I feel like it's Vermont or something, where the citizens of the state, a majority of the citizens of the state could pass the naturalized citizen test. One. I think one state had a majority. That's sad. It's very I, sad. <laughs> I believe it. I believe it, but it's sad. I mean, civics education has gone out the window in, in recent decades, and and I'm afraid we're seeing the fruits of that right now because people just are angry about a lot of institutions that they don't need to be angry about and are ready to ditch a lot of institutions based on kind of headline knowledge, and that's that's unfortunate and sad. Yeah, and you think about the founders of this, like the framers of the Constitution. Like when, when modern democracies write constitutions, they're so onerous and huge, and they wrote this relatively small, short, elegant mm -hmm. document that's held up for a couple centuries. It's 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 it's, it's I feel like our indifference to it is really weird because we have one of the most interesting kind of founding stories for a civic polity. It's just so it's just so interesting. The Constitution is so short. It says relatively little. <laughs> you know, it sets up kind of the basic structure, and then it, it you know, and I think and I think part of why that's interesting is because people have this idea that the federal government has any power that's not given to it. Like it's if if you don't prohibit it, then the federal government can do it. That's kind of the idea people have. When in fact the opposite is true, the federal government has only the power that has been explicitly delegated to the federal government. Now combine that with the what we just said, 
the Constitution is very short. <laughs> yeah, right. It's a very short document. And so not that many powers have actually been delegated to the federal government. But people don't realize that. So you, okay, you are an advocate of the Electoral College. You are probably the first call when, like, you've been on the 1A podcast or on NPR. You've been on a YouTube debate that was moderated by Lawrence O'Donnell. Like, you, you're, you're a go-to expert on this. 50% of the, uh, in a poll last year, 50% of the country favors a national popular vote. 38 or 34% are favor the Electoral College and 16% have no opinion. It surprises me that it's that big that, you know, people don't weigh in one side or the other. But, you know, so you're kind of arguing against the cultural grain, right? Like, because the, the older we get as a country, the more people find the Electoral College kind of arcane or antiquated and and when it really matters, it, it, it seems to sort of uh, add insult to injury and division. So, like, why do you care so much about it? Because you're passionate about it. Mm -hmm. Well, it's hard not to be. I've been studying it for almost two decades. And I guess what I will say about that is when I first started, I didn't care at all when I first started. <laughs> I was doing it to get through law school. Um is kind of a funny story. I broke my arm, so I had no writing arm and couldn't take notes in class. And so I needed something to replace it. And I replaced it with an independent study on the Electoral College. And that's how this all started for me. I, I knew nothing, nothing more than anybody else knew. But I'm doing this independent study and I realized, wow, nobody taught me anything about this. I, I have not understood this in, until, you know, until I took time to look into it. The other thing I noticed... Were you like running around like to your fellow classmates and friends like, did you realize how interesting the Electoral College is? Were, they, were you like annoying people, like rattling off facts and stuff? <laughs> I would love to say that's true. It wasn't. I was exhausted. I had a broken arm and I, you know, I was barely holding it together. But I bet, um, and I was editor-in-chief of a Law Review. I have a broken arm. I'm editor-in-chief of the Law Review and I have to take, I think it was like six classes to graduate. And I... And, and I had to do physical therapy for the arm at some point in that mess. I mean, I was actually just a big mess. So it was really kind of later. And I, you know, I finished the independent study. I got out. I, I was going to then, in my more rational mind, turn it into a law review article. I did turn it into a law review, review article, and I was going to get it published. Um, and then I had an opportunity to turn it into a book instead. And so, you know, the thing that I noticed about the Electoral College during that time period that people forget completely is that Al Gore was actually predicted to win the Electoral College and lose the popular vote. People don't know that. I mean, he actually, in October of 2000, was preparing to defend his Electoral College victory to the country because he thought he would have to do it. Now, as we all know, it turned out to be the opposite. George Bush was the one who lost the popular vote in the end. But um, it, it just showed me how easily this. If I was go. Al Gore in those debates with George Bush, mm -hmm. I would have been like, when you had the Texas Rangers, you got rid of Sammy Sosa. How could you be president? <laughs> <laughs> Why didn't that come up? Like, hey, man, when you ran the Rangers, you got rid of Sammy Sosa. Well, I don't know. I, I grew up on the Astros, so, I, <laughs> 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 you know, <laughs> but um, anyway, the, the system's just not. It's not partisan. It is not a system that favors one political party over the other. It does seem that way and it feels that way because of recent events. But if you look at the history of states voting and you look at the history of the Electoral College, what you realize is that it simply does the best job of rewarding whoever is doing the best job of coalition building. Now, that sounds funny in the year 2019 when we're looking at the angry mess that our political system is right now. But I would argue Look, we are in a period of time that was like the one that existed after the Civil War, 
a series of close elections. Nobody is doing a good job at coalition building. You got one party that loses the election and you got one party that doesn't lose. <laughs> and it's because nobody is doing what they're supposed to do. Eventually, as this is what happened after the Civil War, what happened, what the parties got their act together. They realized however much we might hate the other side, we got to figure this out. Remember what we have in common as Americans, what brings us together? How can we reach out to the middle, the middle of America, the independent voters, the people who are, you know, how can we bring them all under our umbrella and build coalitions and win the election that way? And of course, if after that period, that difficult period after the Civil War, you end up with Coolidge and FDR winning in huge landslides because they did finally get their act together. And I would argue that in the same way today, we're just in a period of time where nobody wants to do what the Electoral College requires, which is to reach a handout to someone who's not like you to try to understand them instead of just screaming at them <laughs> and to try to figure out where you can find common ground and all, and all come together. So eventually somebody's going to figure this out and then they're going to start winning in landslides. Yeah, I mean, and we have had landslides in recent memory. Like, I mean, it, it's interesting too, because you point out that in the entire history of the country, the the popular vote loser only became president five times. Two of the times you're like, have asterisks because our tally the popular vote is ambiguous. They might have actually won the popular vote, but it, mm -hmm. it, it, but the contingency systems right. kicked in and stuff. Right. So basically, we're really talking about certainly three times, right? right. Uh, once in 1888, and then the other with um, with Harrison, Benjamin Harrison, and then the other two have been in modern history. So by and large, right, the Electoral College generally syncs up with the popular vote. And, and, and this is why I think people actually don't even realize you really, there's no place in the constitution that guarantees the citizen a right to vote for president, right? right? Like, like you, you have, you know, you have rights to vote for uh, your representative and stuff. There's, but there's no suffrage for president, but people just kind of think, assume it because the national popular vote and the electoral college almost never conflict. Right. Right. You know, it's interesting what you're saying. Cause I think, Maybe part of why the electoral college is not appreciated, it operates in the background. You just you don't see it. It's 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 really about an incentive structure that kind of undergirds the system. And because of that successful system, we have had so many just kind of peaceful elections where there's this you know an outcome that is obvious to everybody, and we move on. So yeah, there were these five, and that's what that was. But those are the exception, not the rule. And the reason we have so much stability. It's because of the Electoral College, but it's kind of like it gets praised. It never gets praised, I guess, for all the good stuff it does because it's in the background. And then when it kind of comes up and there's a conflict, people get mad. And so, you know. What, what do you say to people that are like, okay, look, it, it seems in modern times, like in this century, the two times it happens, right? It takes a razor thin election and adds insult to injury, right? So, so it's razor thin. People are already partisan and divided. Right. And then you, you have a double disenfranchisement sort of like, gosh, if we didn't have that, at least it, it's still, we still have close elections, but yet you wouldn't at least have this sense that, okay, hey, Hillary Clinton got the second most popular votes in any candidate in history, except you know, the only president that ever got more votes than Hillary was Obama 20, 2008. She got more than Obama 2012. And so people are like, what? This is, she got the second most votes ever and she loses. So, I mean, that feels bad, clearly. And I can't really argue with that. But I, what I wish parties would do is to just 
take a minute to stop and look at why that happened. Now, the reason that happened, this is another thing people don't usually know, but Hillary Clinton thought she was about to win the the electoral vote and lose the popular vote. She thought that's what was going to happen. So at the end of the campaign, she purposefully spent time and resources driving up the vote, the popular vote, in areas that were already friendly to her, areas like Chicago, where she knew she could just drive up a a lot of people. And so she ends up winning the popular vote. But if she had instead taken those time and resources and spent them in Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania... She, she would have probably won the election. <laughs> you know, she did the exact opposite of what the Electoral College wanted her to do, which is to reach out to a variety of voters. She instead purposely dro- drove up her vote among friendly, in friendly areas. And then she complains that she loses the Electoral College. I wish the Democratic Party would just instead stop and think about this is why this happened. It's because we catered to our base too much. We spent too much on one kind of type of voter. We got 20% of our vote from only New York and California. And in those places, it was mostly in the big cities. So, you know, let's look at our strategy (laughs) and change it because that election was really winnable for her. She, it, it just was. Yeah, and it was. I mean, I think most, even Democrats, would concede that she ran a bad campaign. Like when you look at like the uh, her predecessor Obama, who ran great campaigns uh, mm-hmm. and you know had smart people. It seems like this was like she spent a lot of money, spent it badly. Trump spent less money uh, and won. I mean, so I mean, you, but I do think that. What about no? So I'm I live in Pennsylvania, right? So the electoral college is great for me because like we're huge, we're a battleground state, right? So uh, you know, like people are, you know, we're uh, you know we we get wined and dined in the general election the way Iowa and New Hampshire do, you know, in the primary season. But but what about the fact that people that complain about it are like, look, uh, you know. Whether you're a Republican or a Democrat in Texas or California, in these big populations, it's like we really like our votes because they're early deciding states. You know that basically they're you know they're not battleground states. That people feel like, hey, my vote really doesn't matter that much. Uh, that I you know there's, that I'm not as incentivized to be engaged because. It's a handful of states that get all the visits where all the money's spent, and, and and that just seems unfair to people. What do you say to that? I would say it's perception, but not reality. Uh, every state matters, and there's several several ways you can address that. One is that the identity of safe and swing states is constantly changing. What you have said right now is true today, might not be true in ten years. You know, there's a whole bunch of people hyperventilating. Yeah, like te- like Texas could become right. a, a blue state. It's very right. possible. I'm, I'm in Texas, and people are hyperventilating that we might go purple. And I, you know, and I just, it was so funny to me because I was uh, probably about a month ago debating a national popular vote person. And he, in the same breath, practically said, you know, first of all, safe states don't matter. You know, he was sitting in Texas. He was like, you guys don't matter, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then like three sentences later, he says, oh, God help us if Texas ever becomes purple. <laughs> so the next sentence out of my mouth when I, it was my turn to talk is, you just proved my case. Every state matters. Texas, sure, we made up our minds early in the process. And, but that didn't mean that we were unimportant. The, the Republicans are going, they want Texas. You know, like they, they want every safe state. They, they do not take them for granted. Or if they do, they'll lose, by the way. But uh, another demonstration of this is in 2016, Utah, okay, so I think they have six electoral votes, if I remember correctly, six electoral votes, little tiny red safe state of Utah threatened to vote third party. Well, guess what? The Republicans 
promptly sent out Mike Pence to go fix the situation. And in the closing days of the campaign, a little small red safe state got a visit from the vice presidential candidate because Utah mattered. Every state matters. You cannot get to 270 if you're relying only on swing states. You need those other states too. Now, look, maybe they're they're happy with you already because, but if they are happy with you already, it's probably because they were happy with the four years of governance that preceded the election. Things are kind of going their way, so they 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 just they've made up their minds already. That's all. When things change, they will they will change their minds too. So okay, so. I, I didn't know that they sent Mike Pence out. America's stepdad. He's kind of like, he would be a great stepdad in any reality, <laughs> any sort of serial drama. That crap haircut. He's got a very uh, interesting look about him. But yeah, this is interesting. I, I, I agree that, that we, we, we tend to see the present as inevitably the future, which is just completely uh, not the case, especially with the, the way market forces and we're in a very dynamic world with the global kind that population centers can change all the time, right? Like, I mean, these right. things just happen. What, what about, uh, the fact that uh, critics are going to say stuff like, I think there was a demographic projection that by 2050, uh, I saw this somewhere a couple months ago, that, that 70 senators will represent 30% of the population and the other 30 senators will represent 70% of the population. So like, that's a lot of federalism, right? I mean, right there, because one senator has so much power, has enormous power. I mean, with Supreme Court judges, with anonymous holds. I mean, one senator is just, it's a lot of power. And, you know, would it really sort of, because I mean, you're, you argue and, and very, you argue very aptly that, hey, look, we got a, a, a very careful balance of federalism, you know, where, where we have, you know, not just direct democracy to protect us from mob rule. We have uh, a, a constitutional rights that, you know, you can't just, even if the majority says, Blacks and whites can't marry. We've we've decided, no, you can't pass those laws. Even if 99% of the people want it, you can't pass it. And we have things like the Senate, which check big states with, you know, power empowering small states. Is this really the linchpin that if we lost this, federalism would erode? Like, do you think like of like, let's say like the top 10 things we have to preserve federalism? I, th- I feel like a lot of the people against the Electoral College are going to say this is not like a big one. Like, you know, that. The Senate is a big one and some other things are big ones like this. How would you make the case that, hey, this is a biggie? Well, a couple of things. One is um, it's a foot in the door and people do want to. There are people who want to get rid of the Senate. And I just think it's a slippery slope. That's one thing. Two is it was interesting what you said about the statistics about the Senate. If I repeat them slightly wrong, you said something like, I know some percentage will represent 70 percent of the population. Yeah, like 70 senators will represent. 30% Thirty okay. percent of the populace, and the the other thirty will represent seventy percent of the populace. Okay, so it's interesting what you said because you kept saying of the populace, of the people, but the Senate was actually supposed to represent the states. So really, every senator equals it represents, or every two senators represents one state. That's one fiftieth of the country is really the the way to look at it. And I guess the other thing I'll say is I think. But, it's but really, and that, really, in response to that, though, what if the person says, "Well, yeah," and we change the seventeenth the seventeenth amendment? We kind of popularly elect senators, right? Which, which normally, you know, the the Senate was to, you know, the only direct representation that people had was the People's House, right? We change that, and people are going to say we still have federalism, right? I mean, you know, we could all agree that certain changes still keep federalism intact. Well, I was actually going to mention the Seventeenth Amendment as something that that changed our system for the worse. And that actually was a very, very bad thing for federalism and for our system. And the reason that that is, that that's so is because, like we've been saying, the, the Senate was supposed to represent the states, represent the states as states. Now, 
it used to be that if you sent a United States senator to this to Congress, they knew, well, I've got to be careful because if I make my state legislature at home unhappy, I'm not going to get to come back here. So for instance, if somebody in the House wants me to vote for an unfunded state mandate, I'm just going to say, no, thank you, because I'm accountable to the state legislature, not to the people. The House is accountable to the people. That's their whole job. That's what they're for. It's a balance. You know, and likewise, if the House sends the Senate some bill and they say they're going to tread on state sovereignty, then the United States Senator used to say, well, I represent the state and the state legislature, and I'm not going to do that because they're going to be really unhappy with me when I take that power away from them, (laughs) you know, or tread on their power in that way. It was always so careful, such a careful balancing act. And we destroyed it with the 17th Amendment. And the ramifications of that have been real. I mean, take a look at the federal budget. Take a look at the size of the federal government. There are You can find charts online that show how much the budget and the size of the federal government, the bureaucracy, all of that stuff has grown. And you could trace it back to the 17th Amendment. And it's because states lost their voice in Washington. So you would advocate that we take popular vote for the Senate away. Like if you could, if you could wave a magic wand, you would go back to the way before the 17th Amendment, because then your argument would be right that the people are, are, are accountable. The House is accountable to the people. The states are accountable. Uh, the Senate's accountable to the states. Mm-hmm. And then you have a check between the federal and the states. You have all these things like Madison imagined, all these checks going That's every out. which way. Right. And that it would make a more stable system. And we just, we took away one and we didn't think, we didn't think anything about taking away that check and balance. We just did. But the government was always supposed to be a careful balance of federal versus state power that they would keep, each would keep the other from getting too abusive or, you know, too out of control and and, in various ways, the way the system is set up. And we just got rid of one. And we thought that's no big deal. We still got other protections in the constitution, which is kind of what you're saying about the electoral college. No big deal. We've got other protections in the constitution. And I would just say, well, every time we get rid of one thing, there are unexpected ramifications and things get a little bit worse. And so, yeah, I do think if we were to get rid of the electoral college, we would all be surprised 20 or 30 years later at how really just really big the ramifications of that decision were. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ken Skillman, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Jennifer Spate, Ben DeHart, Joel Wentz, Jordan DeMice, Samantha Conower, Simone Garabedian, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Cress, Stephen Rowe, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jody Stevenson, Andrew Stravitz, Glenn Stalsner, Greg Johnson, and Kai Wintenig. 
If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. If the 17th Amendment, right, was that catastrophic, right? How did we get, I mean, anytime you get an amendment passed, like today passing a constitutional amendment seems impossible, right? I mean, we can't even pass a budget, right? Like we have to do <laughs> continuing resolution. Continue. So the fact that you can get a two third, a super majority, how did people convince a super majority of the country that, that was a good idea? Well, I think it's really instructive actually, because how it happened for the 17th amendment, it happened in pieces and it, start, it would start off with little things like, a state representative, you know, saying to their constituents, well, if you elect me to, to the state legislature, I will vote for this person for United States Senator. And it, they were, it would be, a, then it became part of their campaign. I'll vote for this person or I'll vote for that person. And, or then it became a pledge. You know, I promise I will vote for this person if you elect me. And so it just kind of, um, smear, like, Fuzz made kind of made the lines bet- fuzzy between who was electing the senator. Was it the legislature or this? Wh- who was it? And so after a while, I think it just be, it felt like it wasn't changing that much to go ahead and just pass the constitutional amendment. And at that point, it became very easy to pass it. But if they had, it was, it was a, pro- a process that took several decades before we got to that point. But it's, it's concerning because the same thing happens with the Electoral College right now. There's the legislation that's pending in the states, the national popular vote legislation, where states say, well, we're going to all agree to join together and to give our electors to the winner of the national popular vote, and that'll fix it. It's not really getting rid of the Electoral College, but, you know. Right. It binds. So they have 194 pledged electoral votes right now. And so once they get to 270, it, it, which is the number you need to win the election, effectively, the 270 is going to go to the popular vote winner. and then they have the majority and that's it. So the electoral college is sort of, I guess they can do whatever they want. Like I, I'd, I'd have a party or something you know, that day, like eighties <laughs> prom theme and just dance at the, you know, I don't know what you, what, what you do, but yeah, that would, I mean, but you would, see, you see this as a, as a problem, right? Because it would, it would throw the system out of whack. The, the national popular vote, their end game is to get rid of the electoral college. They don't say that when they're in states. They say things like, oh, we're just using constitutional provisions in a unique way and, you know, whatever. We're making every vote count. They say things, but the electoral college still exists. Don't worry. Federalism still exists. Well, that's all very silly. I mean, they're basically implementing the national popular vote system that was rejected at the constitutional convention. They're doing it with a minority of states. Uh, they're on track to get it done with the minority of states instead of the supermajority that would be required by the constitutional amendment. And and they will change drastically the, the, the way that we elect our presidents and they're pretending like it's all just part of the constitution. Well, it's not, but they, but they know that. And so what will happen is we'll get to the end. There will be all sorts of legal problems, by the way, with this legislation, but they'll get there. And those problems, I think, will become so overwhelming and problematic that they hope at that point the constitutional amendment becomes kind of a no-brainer. Yeah, yeah, I think that. Like, okay, so here's what. So here's what I think the popular vote people. Uh, the guy who invented this, right, is from California, and he's like a right. computer engineer or something. Very, very intriguing. Like that, this guy was that interested. It's, I find this so curious. But, but they would say, okay, like you're a states' rights person, right? So if all these states say we want to use our states' rights together, right, like. Why can't we do that? Like, you know, you, I mean, you have a great chapter in your book about faithless electors where this idea that, you know, one of the things that I think is so great about your book is like you detail how ambiguous the elector system was. Like you talk about how like they're throwing this stuff together and James Madison's like, all right, we're not going to be like, look, what if I just sketch together this? And they're like, okay, we can agree on that. Yes. Right. And so certain people like Alexander Hamilton in like Federalist 68 or whatever says, 
He envisions sort of aristocratic electors that really are choosing the president themselves. Other states are, are thinking much more, you know, that you will basically you'll vote for a slate that's that's behind a candidate. Other states right. like New York didn't even get to participate in the first election because they right. couldn't get their system together. So, like, what's to say that they're just saying, hey, we're just using state sovereignty. And if state sovereignty allows to do whatever you want with your electors and, and you know, you can. You could, you could, the state could decide, hey, we'll have a, a mixed martial arts contest to pick our electors. I mean, states can pretty much do what they want. Why can't they do it this way? Well, they, I would have less of a problem with it if they weren't trying to use the compact. The compact is a problem because it looks like an end run around the constitutional amendment. If you process. had to choose between the compact or the mixed martial arts style, which would you choose? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great idea. People would get so into voting if it was mixed martial arts. I guess so. I mean, what I would say to, the, to your question about state, state sovereignty is just, look, states have a lot of latitude, as, as I do detail in my book. And I think, by the way, that our system would be better if states would just remember, hey, at the end of the day, I'm in charge of my electors, not some national entity that some centralized national, you know, even the national parties, the, the states are in charge of their electors. However, the states may not violate another portion of the Constitution in the process. So, for instance, if Texas were to say we're going to have we're going to give our 38 electors to the winner of an election in which only men get to vote, <laughs> that would be illegal. And the reason that's illegal is because of this thing called the 19th Amendment. They don't get to do that. So and, and there's you know all sorts of examples along those lines. So in the same way, you cannot allocate your electors in violation of Article Five of the Constitution, which requires three quarters of the states to be on board before this kind of radical change is made. So, but that the courts would have to decide that, right? Because yes, the courts would have to decide that. Yeah. So this is. I mean, that, this is what's so interesting to me about this uh, national popular vote compact idea, because it, it will force probably a decision on something that's been kind of open ended. I mean, it's, it, we've we've sort of we've never dealt with this and it'll 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 guide the constitutional tradition one way or the other. It's, it's just so intriguing that we've been a nation for you know, over two centuries. And this is like this is like a new question. <laughs> Right. Well, and the same thing is happening to the idea, can electors be independent or must they, you know, if the state tries to bind them, is that legal? Is it, can you enforce that? I mean, that's never been tested in the courts too until it's, it's going through right now. There's conflicting opinions from different circuits and so, I mean, we'll see what happens. But um, do you think, do you, I mean, I would guess, right, that the originalist kind of argument would be, look, the states can bind, can not bind. I mean, the constitution doesn't say what states can do. Like you could have 50 different approaches to electors as long as those elector ballots come in at the presidential election. Like they don't all have to be chosen the same way. Well, there's two ways to look at it. One is like you described, the states get to decide. We've been talking about state sovereignty. They get to, they can bind their electors. The other way to look at it is, well, this is more like electing, this is a constitutional officer. He has constitutional responsibilities and the state doesn't get to tread on that once they've appointed them. In the same way, but by the way, that if, you know, before the 17th Amendment, if a state were to appoint a United States senator, they didn't get to go in and like dictate to them how to vote on everything. They had elected them and now they go in the same way that if you elect a state representative, you don't get to like find them and kick them out of office because you didn't like their vote on some tax legislation. Your your recourse is to elect somebody new the next time. And so, you know, it depends which way you look at it, I guess is all I'm saying. I would mostly encourage people to remember that while it, it's always dangerous to create um, rules and laws based on one set of facts, right? So everybody's looking at 2016. They're mad one way or another. 
And so they think to themselves, well, let's just bind those electors. Okay, stop, take a deep breath, because there are other situations where you might be really, really happy that electors could be more independent. As an, I give some of these examples in my book, but one example would be, what if a candidate has a stroke before the ele- after the general election, but before the meetings of the electors, wouldn't you rather your elector just go in there and vote for the vice presidential candidate? You know, now keeping in mind that the way the system is structured, the losing candidate could win if the electors don't do that. <laughs> so they, you might need them just to go and be kind of independent and think things through. What if you have a Watergate-style situation in between the election and the meetings of the electors, and both the pre- president and vice president are implicated, and they're both in danger of being impeached. And that seems like be- it could happen more and more every day. <laughs> they, they could be ineligible, actually ineligible for office by the time Congress counts the votes. And so even if your electors vote for them, those votes would be cast out. And again, so then you've got a losing candidate who is the only candidate in the House contingent election and the only option. Just, I, I think people just... So again, I would just encourage them to learn more, think think it through. And and I honestly think the better – I actually testify this way in Texas. I would not tell any state except my own what to do because it's, it is a matter of state debate. But um, when I testify before Texas, I encourage them to instead think about – Let's, let's figure out how we can make the whole process more transparent so we know who these electors are and we know if we trust them. And and and, and let's start going through those kinds of or, – or maybe we have more rules, better rules for when the state calls a special session in, in the wake of a controversial event and says, okay, we want our electors to go do this. And most electors would probably be glad to do it, by the way, because they, they take their duties very seriously. And historically, that's that's how it's always been. Do you know any electors, people that have served in the yeah. electoral – yeah. Like, do you have you ever gone to the thing where they? No, ever, I should, but I I didn't go. I, I think I wanted to go in 2016, and I feel like something there was something in the way. But um, but I did meet some of those electors after. Do they get like rewarded? Like, is there like they? I feel like they should get like a cocktail party or something for their. Third. I mean, like <laughs> it should be fun. They just want to. I think that's people also. I I you know it would be good for the public to know who these electors are because the vast majority of them are just people who have been working hard. They've probably been working hard for their candidate. So those 38 Texas electors that I mentioned, I don't know them all or anything, but I know a couple of them. You know, They've worked hard for the party. They were elected by the party to represent the party. And, and by, you know, actually, let me back up. Another thing that people don't know is that there are literally different people that could be electors. Like there's Texas had 38 Republicans that got appointed because Trump won the popular vote in Texas. But there were also 38 Democrats, people who wanted to vote for Hillary Clinton, and they would have been appointed if Hillary Clinton had won the popular vote in Texas. So you're not counting on partisans to like vote the opposite of what they want to vote. You're counting on partisans to do exactly what they've been working for all campaign season and to go cast the ballot like you expect them to. See, okay, given the founders suspicion of parties and mob rule and and in general like too much direct democracy mm-hmm. wouldn't it be better if you had super independent electors like I, I mean it doesn't this idea where like hey you can't always trust the people like wouldn't it be uh, more in line with the founders to have another check like hey you know we the people that are sort of more enlightened uh, should have more of a say i mean wouldn't that be more in the spirit of the founders the founders if you read the notes of the convention were really back and forth on that, actually. I mean, they, yeah, one minute they'd be saying the people can't be trusted, they'll turn into a mob. And then the next minute they were saying, hold, oh, hold on, because if the, the sense of the people needs to be reflected or this is illegitimate, this is not valid. And in the end, they felt like the process for president was a fine balance between 
reflecting the sense of the people and and also having checks on it. And James Madison, when he talked about it later, this was many decades later. I mean, he basically wrote that he felt like it had settled into a good rhythm where most of the time the electors vote like you expect them to do in accordance with what the people of the state want. And that's great. But then he then he added that he still thought it was a good thing that they were independent people that in an emergency could could act if it was needed. So this, this is like what's intriguing to me as we as we try to sort of have this constitutional republic, you know, this balance, this delicate sort of balancing act is like certain things like, I mean, the founders could all agree, not everybody should vote, right? They thought, look, it should be white males with that actually have land too, like people because they have more skin in the game. So isn't sort of like expanding that like women's suffrage. I mean, isn't every sort of increase of enfranchisement sort of a, a, step that creeps towards the kind of populism that they were worried about? Yeah, you know, I think that's a good question. And it's something I think about because I, I really think there's a distinction between amendments like the 17th Amendment, where you've changed the structure, you're changing institutions, as opposed to amendments like the, the 13th Amendment or the 19th Amendment, where you say, no, when we say all people, we really mean all people. <laughs> you know, and, and that changes and the structure a lot. I mean, it, and, it, 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 and also when you take it away from landowners, like, you're saying that, that that there's a sort of you know that that people have that people that don't have as much skin in the game right, right should be enfranchised which i mean even if you know there does seem to be a kind of anti-populist instinct there i you know i i, I don't know i think i'm just going to go back to everything that they talked about in the convention was how do we balance this how do we let the people speak because you have to remember they had they had no representation in parliament. I mean that was part of why we fought the revolution in the first place. They knew what it felt like to not be represented, and they thought it was really really important. But they also knew something that we have forgotten, which is that even if they had had a seat at the table in parliament, they would have been outvoted time and time again by the majority of citizens at home in England. So they were just always looking for this balance because they I should say they knew the mob in England basically would have voted against them. So they were just always looking for a balance. And that's just, you know, it has played out in ways probably that they didn't totally anticipate. But I, as long as we're not doing things like passing a 17th Amendment that changes the institution, I feel like it's it's always just... I don't know. We're still always working with that same balancing, the same checks and balances, the same ambition against ambition that that, that Madison spoke of, and that's that is the kind of the structure of the system that we need to respect. Yeah, but I mean, but isn't kind of the Seventeenth Amendment? I mean, didn't they set up a system where they realized we don't know everything, and maybe if there's a supermajority, maybe the system will need to be restructured. I mean, they, they didn't sort of they didn't foreclose that opportunity. Like they left open the opportunity. For things like popular election of, of the Senate through the amendment process. So, I mean, okay. isn't, you know, I mean, so on some level, they built in like a, a capacity to structurally change the system. Yeah, no, they definitely did. I, I'm not arguing with that. But I just, me personally, I think we don't, we shouldn't mess with the institutions. You know, the Senate, when we passed the 17th Amendment, we changed it so that instead of representing people or instead of representing states, they're representing people. And the states no longer have any representation at, at all, as opposed to get, passing something like the 19th Amendment where we say, OK, now, you know, all people really does include women. <laughs> you get to vote, too. Now, of course, that did change because women have different concerns and stuff. But but 
it, or sometimes we do. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah, right. I don't know. That just stereotyped everybody really quickly there tonight. But <laughs> but um, as a woman, I'll say, you know, I, I look, I, I don't, I, I just, to me, there's just an important distinction between those two types of amendment. And, um, and one is just really furthering the, the idea of the founders that we, you know, this is a free country where we are self-governing and we are expanding that. I, it's something I talk about sometimes when we're talking about the founding generation and people say things like, oh, well, yeah, they were racist. They owned slaves. They didn't let women vote. They didn't, you know, a whole mess of stuff they didn't do. Okay. True. All true. Also, they were starting from this really ugly place where the king could tell you whether you get to believe in God <laughs> or, I mean, really basic things wrong in the world, by the way, not just in America, worldwide. And so they started this journey towards freedom and liberty, and they took really important first steps, lots of them. And then th that generation, though, could only accomplish so much. So, I mean, we treat them like, oh, you didn't run the whole marathon in one generation, and that's not fair. What, what they did do is they started the marathon. They started, they made huge leaps for their time. And then they passed the baton to the next generation. And they said, your turn. And so, and we have every generation since then had more and more, more freedom and more and more liberty. And we have, we have recognized that, you know, all people, it really means all people are free. All people have inherent value. All people can make up their own minds and all of these different things or vote or whatever. So I, I guess- that's all long way of saying that to me, when you look at something like the 19th Amendment or 13th Amendment, it's, it's just a furthering of that battle, the original goal, the original you know, mandate of America. And if you look at something like the 17th Amendment, well, you're just, you're just changing institutions at that point. Yeah. Bill Maher did a great thing on his show a couple of weeks ago where he was saying, like, stop criticizing people for changing their mind. He's like, people evolve. He's like, you know, a generation, two generations from now, people are going to look at us and, and laugh at some of the things we think are so sensible and they're silly and, and right. people evolve and, and like to have these purity tests that are it's not fair. Yeah. That are sort of, you know, set idiosyncratically and anachronistically in our time. Yeah. It's not fair. There's something that I think is so curious, right. About the electoral college and, and just the way Americans vote. I think there's no vote that Americans cast more emotionally, right. than their vote for president. Right. Like, I mean, turnout goes up like you you know it, it, it's covered i mean most people don't know anything about their local representatives right like yeah. people like people are indifferent on local elections but this is so interesting that like people are so emotionally connected to this vote i mean and i guess that's do you think that's part of the reason why there's this sort of increasing sympathy for getting rid of the electoral college because people think it, it, it it's something about voting for president is so uh, emotional and connected and personal in a way i'm guessing it wasn't in the 18th or early 19th century like it, it was different kinds of mindset about voting it was the opposite that's kind of what's so interesting i think the founding generation would be really really confused about why we we thought that was so important i mean they didn't think it was unimportant clearly they wanted george washington who was respected by the whole nation it's not like they completely dismissed it. But to them, local governance was where it was really at. I mean, they they would have been really involved in their election for governor or their election for city council or their, you know, whatever, all these kinds of, this is what's going to impact your life. I mean, that's how they would have looked at it. But to go back to our early discussion, we have given so much power to the federal government that the federal government didn't used to have. And by the way, you know, presidents, they, they make decisions now that um, you know, well, are they constitutional? Arguable, <laughs> you know, arguably not sometimes. Uh, and they 
just make these unilateral decisions. So it affects everybody. And it was never supposed to affect everybody to quite that degree. And so it, it has become more important. And so it's not surprising that the emotion has gone up too. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, that's an interesting component, I think. And people, I mean, again, I like what you said about the Electoral College, that it, people pay attention to it when an irregularity happens, right. which which again, as you put in the book, like, you know, really it, it, it it's happened so infrequently that it, it's so intriguing though, that we're so, uh, that this is seen as, as, as the big bellwether issue. Right. And, and you're, I mean, you, you know this cause you're in these debates and stuff, right? This is, there's so much passion about this thing that really, right. Generally doesn't affect most Americans ever, except again, it's affected in, in, you know, in, in, a couple elections in this twice in this century. Uh, but normally it's just, it, that's anomalous, right? Right. I mean, it, it is. There's so much emotion right now about getting rid of the system because people are really mad that Trump got elected. I mean, that's what's driving a lot of it. And I really just wish instead people would focus on this, you know, what were the dynamics that election year? What were both sides, by the way, doing wrong? Because both sides did things wrong. And why did in the end, why did it turn out as it did? And why did the Republicans win? There's lots of lessons to be learned <laughs> for everybody. And it would be more productive than just getting rid of the system. Yeah. And it would seem that like it wouldn't be that hard to figure out how to win, right? Because we know right now that based on certain projections, who knows? I mean, things could change. But it, the battleground states are going to be pretty similar. And you, and we know like polls are pretty decent. Like they're usually decently within the margin of error like it's not that hard to course correct on that stuff right like i mean the democrats need to get eighty thousand votes in three states (laughs) and that would would probably change things so i mean it is interesting that that you it's not uh mysterious how to prevail it's not i mean it's just not the first either party could just spend time trying to figure out like what's going on with middle America and how can we do that? But instead what's happening right now is both parties are catering to their bases at both extremes, but both parties are doing this. And so that's why it looks like it does right now. And that's why the election will probably be close again, unless something changes. And I mean, we'll just be on repeat, I guess, or something. I don't, I don't know. But what I really wish is that people on, again, on both sides would just say, okay, our base wants that. Okay. But Maybe we're not going to go that far to the left or that far to the right. We're going to see what we can find here in the middle ground where we can come together as Americans and agree. It, I mean, I promise if one party were just to do that, it wouldn't even be a close election. It, okay. There are some projections, right, that Trump could lose the popular vote by five million, you know, by five million, not just three million, and still win the Electoral College. If that happens, right, if he gets reelected. Mm-hmm. Do you think your job gets hard? Your like debates get harder. Like if that sure. happens again, yeah. Is it sure. like? I mean, it, it. I mean, I guess you're kind of rooting for the popular vote and, and electoral college to sync up, right? I am rooting for one party to fix itself. That I mean, honestly, that's what I'm rooting for. This is a bad place for us. It's I, I don't enjoy it anymore than anybody else does. I, it's it's the anger and the divisive. I mean, it's depressing to log into Twitter sometimes. Like it's just brings your mood down, you know, looking at the vitriol. I, I, I am rooting for one party to figure out what it did wrong in 2016. I, I honestly don't even care which party. I just want one party to fix itself and to figure it out and to move on because that would be good for all of us. Yeah. It's interesting because like you make this point well in, in your book. And by the way, I, I, I would recommend 
to any of my listeners, whether, you know, whether you're for or against the Electoral College, it, it's a great book. I mean, you, you really do your due diligence historically. And I mean, I think it's it's and you, you point out how it's not been historically partisan. It's not helped. What, but right now, it seems that it's partisan because of each party's base and, and their population centers. And it could wind up for a couple election cycles where you have Republicans able to you know, they might, they might win the presidency a couple times in a row, consistently getting the, you know, losing the popular vote. I mean, that kind of, you know, so, so it's it, for the foreseeable future, it's probably going to affect one party beneficially. And I, it's hard, I guess it's hard for people to see past that, right? To the fact that, hey, seasons change, things change. Like that's, I mean, that, somehow that's hard for people to get, to get over, it seems. Yeah. Um, you know, I guess here's maybe another way to put all of it. I, Iron sharpens iron, right? Like book of we proverbs. Need, book of proverbs. We we need two strong parties. Right now, we've got two weak parties, and that's bad for us. It's just bad, and it's why we're stuck in this place. And that's kind of why I said I almost don't even care which party goes first. I may, maybe I'm making all your listeners mad. I hope not, but <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I, no, I probably not. I, I don't. I kind of don't care. But the reason is because once one of them becomes more like iron then the other one will have to. And and that would be just a better, healthier place for us. We need honest competition. We need an honest exchange of ideas. We need dialogue. We need to talk to each other again. This would all be good for us as a country. And so I am just, so you ask what I'm rooting for. I am rooting for a party to figure it out finally and to fix itself so that we can move on to a And I think the popular vote and all these things, it'll follow. It, it will happen. And we will leave this ugly mess of close elections behind us, and it would be a good thing. Well, I'll tell you, I, I hope that's true. And uh, and for people of that share that sentiment, I'm sure my, a lot of my listeners do. Um, I, I, I mean, they would be benefit from reading your book, Why We Need the Electric College. It's a great book, and I appreciate your passion for civics. Thanks for writing it, and thanks for taking some of your time to talk with me and my listeners about it. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Tara for coming on the podcast. Do check out her book, Why We Need the Electoral College. You won't regret it. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.